Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Invite you all to turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16 is our text, and we're looking at verses 1 to 2, uh, 1 to 4, excuse me. And um, these are what we're going to do this morning is a, is a small exposition on the outset. And we're, uh, because the text doesn't give us a lot to build on, we're going to move around throughout the New Testament to look at some other uh, texts to draw out some principles as we think about this theme of um, con- the conquering covetousness. This morning, uh, Paul writes as he begins chapter 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. As we begin chapter 16 this morning, you'll notice a familiar phrase at the beginning, now concerning, and then he fills in the the details. This is the fifth now concerning since chapter 7, and just like before, it alerts us that Paul has shifted gears to a new topic. He's been talking about the resurrection for all of chapter 15, and now he is um, pivoting here in chapter 16 and responding to yet another question or statement that they had uh, communicated with him about in their previous letter, which is what prompted him to write them, uh, on re- with regard to a collection for their fellow believers. So that is the, the issue here. And then, of course, he's going to get into a lot of specific details in the subsequent verses uh, on his travel plans and what he hopes to accomplish. But the beginning of chapter 16 here uh, Paul is, is clearly responding to something that they had asked him about. The fact that the destination of the collection is only mentioned indirectly in verse 3 um, implies that they knew full well for whom it was intended, and the collection was a ministry they had discussed in some detail in the past, whether that was through a letter, some correspondence, or a messenger sent by Paul to this church, or even perhaps with Paul himself during one of his visits. This use of the term collection here is a unique term. It's not used elsewhere in the New Testament here and in verse 2. And it has with it, uh, it's more of a technical term for the actual activity of taking up a voluntary contribution. The focus of verses 2, uh, well, 2 and 3, is, this, is on the activity of the person or persons engaged in obtaining this monetary gift. Paul offers so little information in these verses about the collection, about its purpose, uh, its targeted recipients, its theological significance, like none of that's really there. It's very limited in what he says. And so it seems, it seems by just looking at these verses that, um, that, that, you know, this is an administrative thing more than a shepherding thing. This is more of a general information communication thing than a spiritual formation thing. And yet, as we're going to see later on, this does shepherd our hearts. It has much to teach us, much to teach us spiritually. And so, what is Paul's instruction? It is very simple. He says, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. Um, since Paul had just come through that region, Galatia, of course, modern-day Turkey, uh, there are a number of churches in that region. He, he went through there on his way to Ephesus. 
Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 18. It's most likely at that time he informed those churches what they were to do with regard to this collection for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And he informed them how to go about setting it aside. And so in, this op- in these opening sentences, Paul proceeds to detail those instructions that he had given to the church in Galatia, which they were to follow suit in. And the, collection, and the instruction is simply this. He says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper for this much-needed collection. This is, again, kind of an interesting little note here. This, these verses are the first piece of evidence in the New Testament letters. And the Gospels kind of were written you know, to record some of the details of even the after Christ's resurrection. But these are the first, this is the first piece of evidence in the New Testament letters confirming that Christians observed the first day of the week for their day of worship. Um, and that there was little reason to doubt, though, that that was the practice from the very beginning. In fact, in John 20, in verses 19 and verse 26, we see the disciples together in the upper room and they're there on the first day of the week, gathered together, even if they're kind of trying to figure out what in the world has just gone on. But then later on in Acts chapter 20, we see the, the, the church gathered. We see the church gathered on the first day of the week. In fact, in Acts 20, in verse 7, Paul says that uh, he, as he was traveling through there, it says, on the first day of the week, when this is Luke writing, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to these believers, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. This is his famous hour and hour long sermon where the guy fell out the window and died, and, or, or nearly died, we don't, I don't know, and came back to life. Uh, so, uh, so this is when the church gathered, and uh, we see that again in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. John says he was... Um, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And this is, of course, referring to the first day of, of the week. So, so this term, the first day of the week, um, is a, a significant time in the life of the church. The fact that Paul mentions Sunday at all here implies that there is some significance to their setting money aside on this day and not just one day in the week, you know, like Tuesdays or something. And, uh, and while that significance may simply be a matter of when people were, were, uh, were paid, it seems far more likely that it is a weekly accounting with some kind of religious significance. I think that's what is going on here. It kind of echoes the Jewish tradition of, of counting days in relationship to the Sabbath. And that's what believers were doing with the first day of the week. So the first, and, and the other thing that's interesting is the first day of the week harkens back to the gospel records and reminds us of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Every gospel uses this phrase, on the first day of the week, so-and-so did this, Mary Magdalene, and so forth. And so it, it, it occupies a prominent place in each of the gospels, showing its spiritual significance for the early church. The first day of the week, Sunday, became a weekly commemoration of our Lord's resurrection, which shows the importance that the early church attached to it and marked it distinct from the Sabbath. That we were not, this is not just a, a, a revision of Judaism. This was a wholesale departure from the religion of the Jews at that time, and this was something unique. This is confirmed, of course, as we saw in Acts 20, verse 7, 
in which Paul says he waited in Troas until that first day of the week because what's assumed is that he knew that Christians would be gathering together on that day to break bread, to gather around the Lord's table and enjoy the fellowship meal that went with it. So all of that together makes a strong case that Sunday is the day when believers from the very earliest days of the church gathered together for corporate worship. This was a specifically Christian celebration of worship. And consequently, that is why we gather on the Lord's Day on Sundays for worship. This one day out of seven points to Christ's victorious resurrection, and it follows in the footsteps of the apostolic pattern set in motion from the beginning. And it was at this time, on the first day of the week, that God's people were to come together to worship him. And it was at this time that Paul says in our text that God's people were to set aside monies for the needs of the saints. And he says, each one of you is to do this, to put aside and to save. This indicates that every believer, no matter how rich or how poor, would be expected to make a contribution. Paul doesn't indicate a definite amount. He does not indicate a fixed proportion of one's income that is to be contributed. He leaves that to each individual conscience, each individual situation. But the point is that all were to contribute. So what we see here in verse 2 is this pattern of free will giving, which is the pattern that the Lord gives us in his church. It is free will giving. It is from the heart as each one is prospered, as each one is prospered. This verb, these, all the verbs here in verse 2 are in the present tense in a continuative uh, condition or state. Their giving, our giving, is in proportion to the way God has prospered them, and it should be determined really as a matter of principle, not something done on impulse. Our giving is to be done on principle. Paul does not want, as he comes to this church, he does not want to preside over a one-time collection that's being haphazardly thrown together, um, you know, when he shows up at the door. He has no interest in presiding over a last-minute scramble saturated with emotional pressure, which is what would happen if he were to show up and say, let's do this. He wants their giving to be planned, he wants their giving to be purposeful, and he wants it to be regular, consistent, week by week by week until he shows up. And he doesn't know when he's going to be there, and the timing of all of that is uncertain. And so Paul says, I'm going to have you do this until I come, and whenever I arrive, he says, you know, I will write letters of commendation and send them along in the hands of the Corinthians messengers, your messengers, to its destination, which was ultimately Jerusalem. He says, when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. He says, plans are up in the air. He's not sure what he's going to do. He didn't know whether he was going to Jerusalem, you know, first, or if he was going to be back to meet them or what. But he says, if it's fitting, he would accompany them and if it wasn't, he wouldn't. That's kind of the thrust of, of verse 4. But whether he chose to go with them or not, Paul was meticulous and careful in how he went about this. He didn't plan to touch the money. It wasn't coming to him personally and going out from him individually. The Corinthians would collect 
this gift, this monetary gift week by week. They would keep the money until Paul arrived or, or worked it out and then send the money in the hands of their honorable representatives whom he would write a letter of, letters of commendation for. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one practical and one theological that, that lie behind Paul's instruction here. Practically speaking, they'd probably be carrying a reasonable chunk of change to go from, you know, Corinth to Jerusalem. And most, well, all of that would have been in coinage. There wasn't, I don't think there was paper money at this time. Uh, coinage was, was the means of exchange. And so that's a pretty substantial um, uh, thing to carry around. That traveling long distances with lots of money is not a safe thing to do. And there'd be lots of opportunity for impropriety, lots of uh, opportunity for um, theft or robbery. And so sending representatives... Honorable men, that's really the, th- the, the picture here, sending them with a letter of commendation would be a, a practical way of assuring both the churches that are giving and the churches that are receiving that everything was on the up and up, that everything was being done with integrity from start to finish. But the- there's a theological uh, angle to this as well for Paul, and that is that the representation of each of these churches, uh, churches in Galatia, Corinth, and others, is that those are Gentile churches. And this would be an important, that was as important as the gifts themselves in Paul's greater concern for the unity of the church. Sending money from Gentile Christians to alleviate the suffering and poverty and need of primarily Jewish Christians in the land of Palestine uh, would be a powerful, powerful testimony that Christ had indeed, as we read this morning, reconciled them both Jew and Gentile into one body to God through the cross and having and by it having put to death the enmity. That's what we saw this morning in Ephesians 2. He understood that in preaching the gospel that we were preaching a gospel of peace to you who are far off, meaning the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is the Jews, and that through him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access in one spirit to the Father. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household together. And because we are fellow citizens with one another in God's household, in his church, and because we are fellow members in God's, uh, excuse me, citizens in God's kingdom and fellow members in God's household, we have an obligation to look out for one another and for our own, spiritually, obviously, but even practically in terms of our uh, material needs. And therefore, a regular contribution for the needs of the saints was then, as it is today, a tangible expression of our love for one another and ultimately for God himself. And the reason is Paul understood. He understood our heart's proclivity to turn inward, to selfish desire. He understood that. He knows the heart. But the gospel... Its work in our hearts beckons us to look outward. It really, it transforms our, our, our priorities. It transforms us to look to selfless work and, and, and to sacrifice. This is what the gospel does for the benefit of others. And there's no greater litmus test of where our heart is than how we think about and handle material possessions. There's a reason that Paul instructs them to regularly set aside money week by week for the needs of the saints. 
And that's because he knew that if they didn't make it their planned, purposeful practice, that covetousness would consume those resources on themselves and deprive their fellow believers of much needed assistance. Solomon says this in Proverbs 27 and verse 20. He says, Sheol and Abaddon, which are just, um, which is really just a way of speaking of death. He says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. You know, just as death's appetite is never satiated and can always consume more victims, death personified. He says, uh, man's appetite for stuff is bottomless and can always, always consume more resources. Uh, he understood, Solomon understood, Paul understood our hearts. And covetousness isn't a topic that we preach about, honestly, that often. I can't even remember the last time I even used the word in a sermon. But we probably should address it from our pulpits a lot more than we do, just given the materialistic kind of consumeristic culture that we are immersed in. Covetousness is an inordinate desire to possess what belongs to another, usually something tangible, but it doesn't have to be just, you know, something you can touch and feel. It can be translated in the New Testament to desire, the term, and in the 10th commandment, it means uh, an ungoverned, selfish desire that threatens the basic rights of others. So, of course, we know the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. But in Exodus 20, verse 17, Moses says to the people, You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, you know, covetousness is, a, is, is sinful because it's focused on that which belongs to another. It's not ours. And so that which God has given to others and not to us, or at least made available to others. And so when we see that, we greedily want those things for ourselves. And rather than being content with what God's given you or given me and being thankful for how God's prospered us, we become discontent with God's gracious provision and we ultimately complain against God in our longing and our maneuvering kind of selfishly to, to acquire those things for ourselves. It's interesting, covetousness is at its root a spiritual issue. It is a spiritual issue and is contrary to Christian conduct. Um, further along in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul makes clear, he says, uh, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So covetousness is a thinly veiled idolatry, is a spiritual issue. It is the worship of the creature and created things instead of worshiping the creator who is worthy of all of our honor, all of our praise, all of our obedience. And it, in Paul's instruction here, in this simple kind of administrative procedure, he lays out a subtle call for you and for me to conquer covetousness by our collection for the saints. The discipline of giving 
showing generosity, demonstrating mutuality and reciprocity in partnership for the needs of the saints is an important guardrail that God has built into the life of his church to keep us from consuming our resources on ourselves. And so what I want to do this morning with the time that we have left is to lay out five truths that I believe will help you and I conquer covetousness specifically through our collection for the saints. Five truths, I think, that will help you and help me, at least they've been helpful to me, conquer covetousness in and through our collection for the saints, because that is what lies behind the instruction. And, of course, we're going to have to move throughout the New Testament because, you know, a strict exposition of this text is going to um, alert us to all of these things. But uh, I just want to lay out five truths to help us conquer covetousness in our collection for the saints. First, you can conquer covetousness and give regularly to meet the needs of the saints by recognizing God's already provided everything you need to glorify and enjoy him. I'll say that again because these, these points are long. I'm sorry, but there's no way to distill it down. <laughs> We can conquer covetousness and give regularly to the saints by recognizing God's provided us already everything that we need to glorify and enjoy him. Look with me for a second at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6, Paul says, But godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, you might look, be looking at that word contentment, and you may not realize, but in the original language, the idea is self-sufficiency. That's, the theme, that's really the, the heart of that term. But it's a God-dependent self-sufficiency that looks to and trusts God's generous resources rather than in our own. That, that's the theme here. If you're content, you have, by God's gracious provision, the spiritual resources to live each day for him. You don't need anything else. Even if you don't have all the outward stuff that the world depends on for joy and happiness. Um, you don't require material things for spiritual strength. You don't require material things for spiritual comfort or hope or help. Instead, you look to God's gracious resources, knowing that they are all that's necessary for you to enjoy him and to glorify him with your life. This is the principle that stands behind Paul's um, second letter to the Corinthians later on, which was to encourage them to finish this work of collection, which they had kind of stalled out in. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything. It's a lot of alls there. Having, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. God has given us his spirit. He has given us his word. He has given us the shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. He's given us access to the throne of grace through prayer. He has given us a sure hope of resurrection, which we just learned about in chapter 15, together with Christ. I mean, we have it all. He's given us everything we need to enjoy him, everything we need to glorify him, but a a heart that's consumed with covetousness says, I need X or I need Y in order to be happy. 
in order to do what God wants me to do. I need to have a certain house. I need to have a certain car. I need to maintain a certain income. And so we selfishly tell ourselves we need those things and chase after them to the detriment of our fellow saints. But God's word teaches us that we have all we need in Christ. And so we're empowered to give sacrificially to meet the needs of others. So, you know, the first kind of point in our outline this morning is we can give and conquer covetousness and give generously to the needs of the saints by recognizing God has provided everything that we need to glorify and enjoy him. Second, you can conquer covetousness and give regularly to meet the needs of the saints by adjusting the level of your desires to the condition and purpose God has chosen for you. By adjusting the level of your desire to the condition and purpose God has chosen for you. See, Paul understood the importance of regulating his desire for material things to, so that it would match the level of where God was blessing him at any given time. Of course, we know this verse well. If you're in and familiar with the Bible, we, we know Philippians 4 well. But Paul says, and not that I speak from want, he's thanking them for their gift, Philippians, but not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, Paul's life was a, a yo-yo financially. One, one minute he was uh, amply supplied, oversupplied, uh, as he was, as he writes to the Philippians, just, just a chock block full of what he needed. And then other seasons were seasons of lack, uh, seasons of want. But he never got stuck in one mindset. He, he never got locked in to one way of thinking. Uh, Thomas Watson, Puritan uh, a writer and preacher, reminds us we need to be flexible when it comes to our expectation and our imagination. He uses the word fancy because it's a 16th century term, but he really means our imagination. So I've replaced fancy with the word imagination in the quote, so it makes sense to us. He says, it is the imagination which raises the price of things above their real worth. What is the reason one tulip is worth five pounds and another, perhaps, not worth one shilling? He says, imagination raises the price. The difference is rather fanciful than real. So why should it be better to have thousands than hundreds? It is because men imagine it so. If we could imagine a lower condition better, as having less care in it and less accountability, it would be far more desirable. He says, the water that springs out of the rock drinks just as sweet as if it came out of a golden chalice. Things are as we imagine them. Ever since the fall, he says, the imagination is distempered. God saw that the imagination of the thoughts of his heart were evil. Imagination looks through the wrong spectacles. Pray, he says, that God will sanctify your imagination. A lower condition would make us content if the mind and the imagination were set correctly. End quote. He's right. He's dead right. I remember several years ago sitting in a counseling meeting with a husband and wife who were struggling in their marriage. And, um, and as I started digging around a little bit, asking questions and getting some information, it became clear that a sore spot in their marriage was, um, 
was a disagreement around their financials uh, and, and what was coming in and going out. And their assessment of the situation was they just weren't earning enough income. That was their assessment. But when we started walking through the, the specifics of their budget and looking at the details, it became clear their income was not the problem. Uh, the issue was the lifestyle that they insisted on maintaining for themselves. And, uh, you know, they had to have certain cars. They had to shop at certain grocery stores. They had to have groceries delivered. They had to live in a certain house. They had to maintain a certain kind of schooling for their children and so forth. But all those things were wants. They were not needs. They were wants. And God wasn't providing what they wanted. And so it became necessary for them to adjust their lifestyle, but they refused to do it. They didn't want to do that. They were unwilling to lower their desires to the place God had chosen for them at that time. They, they refused to learn the secret that Paul tells us about in, a, in Philippians chapter 4 to living in every situation, being filled or going hungry, having abundance or suffering need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, they needed to trust God and bring their expectations down to the level of where God had them. A good portion of their joy, marital joy, and peace was being forfeited out of a simple stubbornness to be content where God had placed them, to live within their means financially. And consequently, it robbed them of the joy and blessing of meeting the needs of others because their budget was completely out of whack. Third, you can conquer covetousness, giving regularly to meet the needs of the saints by recognizing that true satisfaction can only come from building one's life around that which cannot be shaken. You can conquer covetousness and give regularly to meet the needs of the saints by recognizing that true satisfaction can only come from building one's life around those things that cannot be taken or cannot be shaken. Jesus warned us about this very thing in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says in verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, he says, there your heart will be also. When we place more value, more joy, more satisfaction in temporal things and eternal things, we are setting ourselves up for massive disappointment. You're basically inviting misery to come and live with you in your house. It is not... It is the height of foolishness. It is completely contrary to all the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. He says, this is vanity. And then he goes on in verses um, 11 to, I think it's verse 17 there, and he shows all the things that pursuing material wealth, how it disappoints and falls short and, and distorts reality. When you go from wanting temporal things, just wanting them in a simple kind of neutral sense, to loving them, desiring them, obtaining them at all costs, well, we're in serious danger of becoming enslaved to that. 
and we have to be on guard. We are exposing ourselves to mortal spiritual danger. If you turn with me back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I should have had you keep your thumb there or your finger there. But in verse 8, he says, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Earthly riches, Christ says, are uncertain. They are elusive. And here we see in 1 Timothy that they are corrupting when we rivet our hearts on them. They have the potential to corrupt. To borrow the words of Thomas Brooks, they present the bait and they hide the hook. Like a fishing analogy, the devil and our flesh paint temporal things with eternity's colors, but we can't be fooled. We cannot be fooled. And that's why Paul says to Timothy in verse 11, you flee from these things, man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He says, chase after those things, Timothy, that cannot be stripped away. Righteousness, faith, perseverance, gentleness, love. Like these are the things that matter. Further down in verse 17, he brings this point to a fitting conclusion. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, nor to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Scripture's refrain again and again is this, do not trust in riches, but trust in God. Do not trust in riches, trust in God. You're not working if you're working to just live and prosper in this life. You are working to be rich toward God as a believer. You're working to give to meet the needs of others. Now, does the word of God allow us to invest in things that are, benefit our, our health, our well-being, uh, opportunities for our children and so forth? Yeah, yeah. It, it does at times allow us that opportunity. But ultimately... Conquering covetousness means centering our lives on God and him alone. It means investing in an eternity of riches beyond all earthly comparison and not investing everything that we have in the things of this world. So very, very important. Fourth, you can conquer covetousness giving regularly to meet the needs of the saints by learning how to use the things of this world without being engrossed in them. You can conquer covetous, covetousness, giving regularly to meet the needs of the saints by learning how to use the things of this world without being engrossed in them. If you, um, if you were with us several months ago when we were going through chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, you remember in that whole chapter on marriage and singleness and what should we do, and he says at the end of the um, section addressing 
those who are single. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep. And those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. Paul's exhortation is a simple one. We are to travel light in this world. At least mentally. We are to travel light. We should, become, we should not become overly attached to the comforts of this world. First, because life is short and you can't take it with you, right? We saw that. Um, that's obvious in Ecclesiastes. But even in 1 Timothy 6, in verse 7, he says, uh, you know, you can't take it with you when you go. So there's that reality of it's, it's temporary. But secondly, it's all going to burn up anyway at the end of the day. That's why he says the form of this world, all this is, is that's going to disappear. It's passing away. Jeremiah Burroughs in his famous rare jewel of Christian contentment, writes, do not be inordinately taken up with the comforts of this world when you have them. When you have them, do not take too much satisfaction in them. He says there is a certain principle. However inordinate, meaning kind of disproportionate, sinful, any man or woman is in sorrow when a comfort has been taken away from them. So they were inordinate in their rejoicing in that comfort when they had it. If you hear bad news about your estates and your hearts are dejected immoderately and you have a disconnected mood, or discontented mood because of such and such a trial, he says, certainly your hearts were immoderately set upon the world. So likewise for your reputation, if you hear others report this or that evil about you and your heart is dejected because you think your name is suffering, your hearts were inordinately set upon your name and reputation. Now, therefore, the way for you to be, not to be immoderate, he says, in your sorrow when afflictions come is to not be immoderate in your love and delights when you have prosperity. He's basically saying, if you don't want to get destroyed when something falls apart for you practically, don't love it too much. Don't love it too much. We need to have a soldier's mindset. A, a soldier doesn't carry with them you know, everything they could possibly carry with them. They carry with them what essentials, what's essential, what do they need? Second Timothy 2.4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Why? So that he may please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. And you're not going to get caught up in all this rat race and keeping up with the Joneses. As we learn to use the things of this world without being engrossed in them, it will make it easy for us to give out of what God has supplied to us generously and sacrificially. Because we don't need a lot to get by. It's good. It is good for us to search our hearts, I think, regularly and to ask some diagnostic questions. What, one question would be this. What things in this world might be starting to wrap their tentacles around my heart? And this is just a question between you and the Lord. But what things in this world might be starting to wrap their evil tentacles, if you will, around my heart? And if God has prospered you, as he has so many of us, why, a good question to ask, why has God seen fit to give these things to me to enjoy? Why is God giving me this stuff to enjoy? And is he testing me? 
You know, sometimes God doesn't strip away things to judge us. Sometimes he gives us what we want as a judgment or as a test to see where our heart is. Are these tokens of God's love? Are they drawing my heart to God in thankfulness? Am I using them to bless and enrich others? Or am I just using them as fuel for my selfish desires? Are are they just provisions for me to feed the flesh? We need to ask ourselves those questions as God prospers us. Fifth, you can conquer covetousness, giving regularly to meet the needs of the saints by delighting in God more than all else. By delighting in God above all else. God graciously has given us the capacity to pursue joy in so many things. I mean, I think that's really God's grace to us. We can pursue joy in activities. We can enjoy earthly possessions. As Paul said, he's given us all good things to enjoy. Knowledge, money, pleasure, approval of friends. And he's given us careers, relationships with other people. Like, There's so many things we can delight in and find joy in in this world. Thank God for that. But David exhorts us in Psalm 37, verse 4, he says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Can we enjoy the good things of God that he gives us? Money, a spouse, children, leisure activities, learning. Yeah, yeah, we can enjoy those things. That's not wrong in and of itself. But we get ourselves into serious trouble when we pursue our joy in those things more than we pursue our joy in God himself. That's where it becomes a problem. When we do that, we have crossed the line into idolatry. And we have made the creature, indeed, into the creator. John Calvin famously said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And so we need to do frequent interrogation, we need to do a frequent interrogation of our hearts by asking ourselves simply, what do I delight in? Like, what do I really delight in? And assuming that those things are not sinful, because <laughs> if it's sinful, you need to repent. <laughs> but assuming that's just like a neutral thing, we need to ask a follow-up question. Have I been willing to sin as a result of not being able to get what I want? These things that I delight in. Am I willing to sin to acquire those things that I want? If the answer to that question is yes, then we need to confess that we have delighted in those things too much and that we are no longer delighting in God above all else. We've crossed that line into covetousness, which is idolatry. And those bought with the blood of Christ, as those bought with the blood of Christ, we, we are called to keep our focus and our vision on God and God alone to know him and to do his will. The things in this world, while they're certainly in view, they need to be kept on the periphery. They need to be in our peripheral vision, not in the main focus. In a sense, they round out our vision of the world, but God is at the center. He must be at all times. And when we keep that perspective, the desire of our hearts and God's desire for our lives will be congruent. They'll be the same. When we delight in God more than anything else, 
It's easy to give to meet the needs of the saints because there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we love them. And we love the Lord who bought them. We delight, when we delight in God more than all else, it's easy to sacrifice present comforts and resources to invest in the work of making and maturing disciples of Christ. It's a no-brainer. When we delight in God more than anything else, it is easy to forego certain opportunities that may be possible for us in this life to enrich our enjoyment of God in the life to come. Sometimes it's possible, but it's not profitable. And I think we need to come to terms with that, especially in our, in our abundance, our, our, our season of abundance that we enjoy in this culture. So, so all of that, looking at those points, the heart of it all is the economics of grace. It's the economics of grace. God in Christ has freely, sacrificially given everything to us. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Paul says, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. I mean, and the question the text asks of you and asks of me this morning is this, are we letting the economy of God speak to the practical financial dealings you and I have as believers? Are we letting God's economy speak into the practical and financial dealings that you and I have as believers? When you look at it from God's perspective, it is completely appropriate to view our giving week by week, not as some mundane chore of maintaining the church in terms of a repetitive, robotic maintenance, but as the conquest of covetousness in nurturing others ministering and maintaining in the, in the sense of nurturing others. Our giving nurtures by passing on freely received grace from God in Christ to others. Our giving nurtures by tangibly and publicly expressing mutuality and reciprocity to one another in fellowship. That's the heart of partnership and ministry. Our giving nurtures by serving others, even as Christ has yielded up his riches to serve us. I mean, if God has poured his riches into us, how can we not turn around and give freely to others? All of this brings blessing both to the one who gives and to the one who receives. And as our Lord said, it is more blessed even to give than to receive. And so Paul's simple instruction here, just simple instruction, set something aside week by week, is in a way a guardrail for us and helps us conquer the temptation to covetousness so that we would give freely, right, as he has given freely to us. I mean, I just think about what we read this morning in Ephesians 2. You know, everything is God rich in mercy. God, you know, by his grace, everything is grace, 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 bringing us to himself, preparing everything beforehand, filling us with his spirit. Like, it's just, you cannot outgive God. You cannot. And so, as God's people who have been bought with his 
um, saving grace, we, we give freely of our time, of our talents and gifts, but also of our treasures for the benefit of the saints and the building up of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example that Christ has set for us, the way that you have shown us what it means to become poor so that others might become rich. And Lord, you don't even ask us to become poor. In fact, Paul specifically says it's not that you would suffer lack by giving to meet the needs of others, but, but Lord, you have blessed us and cared for us, and, and we need to conquer covetousness and its temptations. Its, its grip is everywhere. We live in a culture that is um, just fixated on consumption, and we look around us and we see others who are, who are blessed and others who are enriched, and we think, you know, why, why can't I have that? Why, why can't those things be true of me and my family? And Lord, help us to set all that aside. Help us to see things through the lens of your word and, and help us to be selfless. Help us to walk with light, you know, with open hand, holding the things of this world with an open hand uh, and help us to be quick to meet the needs of others. And Lord, we've seen that generosity on display in our church over the years in so many, so many ways. So we give you thanks for that. This is in many ways an encouragement for us to excel still more as a church. Um, but Lord, as we have been convicted, as we have been uh, confronted by your word, help us to turn away from those things that dishonor you and may we look to Christ and walk in obedience going forward. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.